Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a we have a founder born in New York City, uh, and uh, obviously quite a quite a tremendous journey uh, in what we're going to be touching here on building, scaling, financing, even exiting. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, David Rosenberg. Welcome to the show, Alejandro. Great to be with you. Thank you very much. So originally born in New York City. You don't come across a lot of people that are born in, and raised and that stay here in, in New York City. So how was life being born into a family where your mother was a philosopher and the father a lawyer? You, you learn to grow up fast in New York. You also don't appreciate it is the melting pot. And you're, you don't only have to understand how to move around on the streets, how to get from A to B. And because of public transportation, you have a lot of independence at a young age. But you also have a lot of diversity around you, a lot of people from different countries, different backgrounds. And I, I think it, it really gives a global view of the world, whereas a lot of places, specifically in the U.S., I think people have a more uh, a smaller view. They're just not as aware. In the U.S., people start, tend to think, well, there's the U.S. and then there's everything else, which obviously isn't true. In New York, you very much have a global perspective. And I think that helped me out not only develop empathy, but develop other perspectives in a much faster way. And why business? I mean, would you say that maybe growing up, being exposed to, to how incredible around finance maybe New York City is, or maybe like anyone in your family that, that influenced you, was the reason behind you really going after it in business? N no, but I would say th the U.S. is great at capital formation, meaning it's great at putting capital to work. Uh, New York City is obviously a, a center of capital, so it, it makes it easier for an entrepreneur to have access to capital to put it to work. But the reason of why business, I started off, I, I studied politics, I studied philosophy. Here, I, I believe that commerce, business, is a great activator for social change. So in so much as a business does social good, not just shareholder good, does environmental good, not just shareholder good, and that business scales, there's more good that could come out of it. Where I've been around too many policymakers, where it's while well-intentioned, some of public projects just aren't as efficient as the private sector. So personally, I believe 
commerce, business is a great way for social activism. Nice. So then why, why going to North Carolina? Because obviously in New York City, there's great schools. So what, what got you to go to North Carolina? Here, I wanted to see another part of the country, as well as I, I grew up in a, in a privileged background, in a private school background, appreciating that it wasn't representative of what's really out there in our country and elsewhere. So I only applied to public universities. I wanted to go to a public university. And when I went down to North Carolina, I just fell in love with it. So I knew right actually when I got off the plane, this is where I wanted to go. And I ended up meeting my wife there. So it worked out pretty well. And then why financial analyst? Because right after North Carolina, that's what you did in a bank. Well, there's an element of do what you know. So just growing up in New York City the, as the financial, one of the financial capitals of the world, it's a great, there's great access to, to great banks. And it's and that someone told me something that resonated, which is great CEOs really understand finance. You really have to understand what pushes the business model, what's what's an opportunity, and how to read financial statements. How to more than that understand it and understand the levers of of building businesses. So I thought it would be a great foundation, and I got into a, an analyst program that gave me a lot of exposure to uh, to the financial markets and. It was, a, it was a great, just that foundation in which to learn. It wasn't, I didn't like the culture of the bank I was in, or, or I joke around that I've never met so many jerks in my life. So for me, it was, I learned as much as what I don't want, as much as what I do want. I knew I didn't want that culture, uh, but I did appreciate what I learned from a financing standpoint. And culture specifically, it was very backstabbing, what's in it for me culture. I'm not saying all banks are like that, but Certainly the one I was at, it was a company called Payne Weber. The alias was House of Payne. And uh, it, uh, I would say it was more of a, a backstabbing culture. Got it. And obviously right after this, you have a friend starting up a company. And this is your, your exposure into the world of startups. And this was fintech, back when fintech probably was not as, as trendy as it has been in the past couple of years. So, so tell us about this experience. Yeah, this, this really got me into disruptive innovation and appreciating disruptive innovation. My best friend, Matt Andreessen, he became the CEO of a, a very successful company called Island. And, um, and part of it was this company, Daytech, and it was basically electronic trading. And this, this company, when you think of electronic markets, this is in the mid 90s, they were the biggest, I think uh, they had as up to 12% of all trades on NASDAQ went through this institution, through Island. And seeing my best friend who occasionally let me carry his briefcase, but seeing firsthand how he disrupted Wall Street. So we were on Broad Street right off perpendicular to Wall Street, about 200 people, very bright young people that didn't care about the old school establishment of Wall Street and high commissions and trading. And seeing how they shrunk margins on the commissions from buying and selling and the, the spread between the bid, bid and the ask and completely disruptive Wall Street was fascinating to me. Uh, personally, I didn't like trading. I like, well, it's not that I didn't like trading. I, I wanted to build something like tangible that I could see. And um, so, so I knew that wasn't necessarily the world for me, but I very much appreciated and admired what my friend did in disrupting this whole industry. 
and the power of technology and, and what it could do uh, to disrupt business and innovate and makes people's lives better. And the company, obviously, there you were able to see the the full cycle it got acquired by Instanet. So I guess from this experience and, and from really being exposed to the world of startups, obviously you got hooked. So what were the lessons that you took away from you before you joined the Israeli incubator? That technology in a business plan with super bright, passionate people, you could accomplish a lot. You could set the bar really high, be bold, not being afraid to challenge the status quo looking at the world. So the people at this company were not afraid to challenge big Wall Street, this small little company, not a change to not afraid to challenge big Wall Street, go strong, just this passion of let's, let's beat in that case, let's beat the quote unquote, the man and be bold was exhilarating. It was exciting. And I knew that was something I wanted to uh, be part of. So just being part and seeing that culture of what it was like, was something I wanted to do again. So tell us about the experience at the Israeli incubator. How, how do you land there? It, it was through a friend. And when I got there, so Israel is fantastic. They have per capita more patents than any other place in the world. Uh, the innovation coming out of the country is fantastic. And this was a company that focused on incubating internet infrastructure companies. When I first got there, and I, and I tell people I like to apply some of the cultural aspects of what I learned at, at this firm, BRM, apply them to my other experiences. But when I first got to, uh, started off at this portfolio company of the incubator, everyone was yelling at each other. And I was like thinking, this is crazy. Why are people yelling at each other? And I realized they're not yelling at each other. They're yelling, they're debating for truth and they're not attacking people. They're attacking assumptions. And it's very important at startups where we're making decisions with imperfect information that we challenge each other. So here, everyone has to come in with thick skin, meaning not afraid to be challenged and to challenge each other, not take it personally. We're not attacking intent, but assumptions and doing that again and again. And it was back to my mother being a philosopher. I grew up in the Socratic method where we constantly debated during the dinner time. So once I realized that the yelling was just passion for the truth, I was very comfortable in that situation. The other thing, I mean, I could at Aero Farms and my other company that I built, I try and do without the yelling, but I very much try and keep the debating and the debating for the truth. The other piece that was very powerful at, at the Israeli company, I realized the difference between Israeli companies and U.S. companies at Israeli companies everyone thinks that they're smarter than their boss. At U.S. companies, everyone thinks that their boss is smarter than them. And when you want to debate the truth, it's often people closer to the information have better information. So you want them to challenge the status quo, not be afraid to challenge their boss. So it's really important to have that belief that you're smarter than their boss because then you're not afraid to challenge assumptions. So that's a powerful distinction that I try and encourage at my companies. Be bold. Don't be afraid to challenge your boss. Don't be afraid to challenge me. I say, and I think this was Larry Bossett who said, I don't need to be right going into the room. I just want to be right going out of the room. And that is, is a very healthy dynamic uh, to have and, and, and challenging and, assumptions. 
and I guess one of the maybe we take a page here out of maybe what you've learned from from your mother and from really going you know after always the why and and like we were saying the truth like how do you define the truth when you're looking at it from a business perspective well sometimes you don't get to know if you're right or wrong but it but the point is with imperfect information what's the best decision at that point in time and given imperfect information let's challenge assumptions put our put ourselves in a situation where we could try and make that great decision with imperfect information so go forward you have to make fast decisions and you have to be comfortable in a space of where it's not clear and you, you just don't have all the facts so you try and gather as much relevant facts as possible so you could be objective but then you have to make a decision so it's not necessarily the truth but you 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 what i mean by the truth it's it's the assumptions not the intent but how do we really attack the assumptions are we trying to solve are we asking the right questions do we have the relevant information given the information we have how do we go forward and, and not with any bias and being as objective as possible. Got it. Got it. So then after the incubator, I mean, rather than starting a company, you actually started your MBA. So, so what got you into the MBA rather than starting a company? Well, I thought it would be a good tool to have in my tool chest. And as one gets older, there's just, you lose your time. You need to do it. Well, you don't need to, but it's beneficial to do it earlier in your career. So I, I realized uh, as I was getting older, I need to either, I'm either going to get my MBA or not get my MBA. But my wife was in Columbia Law School. So I decided to go to Columbia Business School. It's a, it's a great business school, but it's also in, in the New York City area. So that worked out. It, Columbia in hindsight had more of a focus at the time on finance and most people went into banking or consulting. It, it wasn't as strong as in entrepreneurship, which which is where my focus was. It, it's it's stronger now, and I'm I'm happy to see it. I, I'm happy to co lecture where I can at Columbia, uh, but it was it, often for business schools, at least in the U.S., it's about the relationships and being exposed to different opportunities. And for me, as much it was it was a great way to, if I'm being honest, it was a great way to figure out what I wanted to do next in my life in a socially accepted way. So here you're getting your MBA when really I was exposed to a lot of different career paths and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And for me, it became clear I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. And obviously that's when Highcrete comes knocking. So tell us about Highcrete, your first baby. Yeah, so here it was a nanotech material. I think the interesting point of this company was we went from having an interesting molecule that was essentially a, a water that had properties of an oil. So what do you do with it? And it had a good application in concrete and reinforced concrete. So we went from an additive to concrete that helps with waterproofing and corrosion inhibition to when the company was sold, we really became an insurance company. And that's a funny leap from a material company to an insurance company, but we started going into infrastructure and the value proposition was your roads or bridges would last longer, but that's a really hard sell. Selling what 
what's called life cycle is really hard because you need someone that would appreciate that longer life cycle. And most customers want to see their return on investment sooner than a long-term investment. That's what I mean by a hard sell. So we had to really think what's a business plan that delivers day one. And looking at the construction space, realize that the most litigated part of construction is waterproofing. Because when there's a leak, everyone points their finger at others involved, whether it's a consultant, a contractor, a subcontractor, et cetera, et cetera. And we realize that there's an, a way to really take ownership of this. And the pre, how waterproofing is typically sold was two-dimensionally. Selling it in a concrete three-dimensionally, we could essentially increase the price of the concrete, but still be lower than a two-dimensional membrane application. And to make a long story short, the economics worked where we made good money and took away essentially a step of construction, but it only works as a service component of tying it all together because the, the additive in itself didn't work. It had to be coupled with how do you waterproof joints? How do you fix cracks if they occur? And, and then what we were selling was peace of mind. Peace of mind is essentially insurance. So we realized we had to be the best insurance company. So I must have read like 40 different warranties and we created a strong warranty and we started out to sell it. And uh, this is to, to warranty against waterproofing. And then we realized that customers weren't going to take on, if you're building a $100 million building, you aren't going to take a warranty of a small company. So the next smart thing I did is I partnered with the largest repair company in the country, a company called Structural Preservation Systems, and they understood the cost of repair. And I basically said, you guys act as my reinsurer. So if I can't fix the problem, you fix it. It's essentially a marketing ploy. I'll pay you and pulling, and that way it'll make our customers comfortable. And that's what eventually led to our first sale is bundling that together and essentially becoming an insurance company and then going after the next one. And in time, I didn't need to pay this third party uh, st structural preservation systems. They would just take on my company's risk. Uh, unfortunately, when I sold it, the, the new owners didn't understand. They looked at it as a chemical company and didn't understand the insurance component. And part of that is sometimes you have to fix problems that you didn't create. You just got to stand by your product and I think the biggest disconnect culturally. So this was a valuable lesson on the culture is the un underappreciation is sometimes you just have to step up for projects and back it up. And um, their approach was more Sumi approach. And uh, that doesn't necessarily work in the construction space. So it was, it was also just painful on how fragile a culture is and how much it could change. So it was a bittersweet experience is a company I, I built, I loved. I didn't like where it ended up. So I had to just mentally turn the chapter and focus on something else. So obviously, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So I'm sure that there was one lesson that you took away from that, that you absolutely knew that you were going to apply for your next company. What was that lesson? It, it was culture. So as I built Aero Farms, it really started with, First, what's our mission? What's our vision? And then moving from that is what are what's our principles, and what are our what do we want to actively uh, reinforce every day? And 
and st staying true to that. And some of it changes a little bit, but always looking at these fundamentals. And I used to interview more for like roles or experiences. Now, just we we hire and fire by our principles and really sticking to that and appreciating how valuable culture is. Nice. And we'll dive into it just in a little bit. But obviously, after the acquisition of Highcrete, you spent a little bit of time with McDonough, and that was the segue into Aerofarm. So tell us about this. So uh, Bill McDonough is an architect that collaborated with a, a chemist to create Cradle to Cradle, which is a philosophy on how the world material flows and how the world should work from an environmental standpoint. And, it, and it's beautifully thought of. Uh, their biggest contribution is to the environmental movement is this concept that materials are either biological nutrients or technological nutrients, meaning biological, they biodegrade to the earth or technological, meaning they could be upcycled and reused again and again. And once one understands that, one should design with these design principles in mind, which means you should design for disassembly, not creating what Bill McDonough terms monstrous hybrids, meaning you have biological nutrients and technological nutrients that are built together that are not easily separated. And when they're not easily separated, then it goes right to landfill. So how do we design for disassembly? So we keep these nutrient flows, biological and te technological flows in their relevant cycles. So we don't have waste to eliminate waste and, and that there's more to it, but that's what I view as the big gift to society. And what Bill and I work to do, we set out together, he was a mentor of mine, is how do we build companies together that the world's not building fast enough? How do we be bold? And at, at the end of the day, I decided to, um, we had a short stint together and I thought I'd be more effective working on my own as an entrepreneur. He's in essence an architect and he's a visionary for others. And he gave me a lot of great ideas. And also he taught me the power of language. It's not just about an idea. It's about how to communicate an idea. And he's just this beautiful speaker. And I, I really value the time I, I spent with him in understanding the power of language, both written and, and verbal communication and the power of storytelling. He's a great storyteller. And, and he helped get me the, uh, like, see the idea of, of vertical farming. He had a lot of ideas. And one of them is, is all the problems in our agricultural system. So at agriculture, and it really started off with the macro picture, agriculture uses uh, over 60% of the world's fresh water. And it also contributes to over 60% of the world's water contamination. And you just look at that and you're like, wow. And in some segments, like the segment I focused on, leafy greens, there's over 60% spoilage in the supply chain, meaning 10 pounds are grown, 10 pounds are are shipped off. And even after it leaves the farm, only four pounds are consumed. So there's tremendous waste. And like concrete, what I like about agriculture from a business standpoint is these are industries where you're not necessarily competing with one, all these people from the best schools that want to flood into agriculture or concrete. So from a competitive landscape, they're they're not they're not attracting all the talent, all the money. So there's 
often a lot of inefficiencies in these industries that have been underinvested in. And where there are inefficiencies, there are opportunities. So I was able to look just like the concrete industry and looking at litigation in this industry, looking at the supply chain and realizing where are the opportunities. And then I saw that LEDs, light emitting diodes, are coming down in cost tremendously. And if you just, there was something called Heitz's Law, uh, similar to Moore's Law, which talks about computing power. Heitz's Law talks about the efficiency of a diode, a light emitting diode, and how it's improving and reducing uh, the costs by about 50% every three years. And if I just follow Heitz's Law, you realize this could have tremendous relevancy in certain industries, one of which is agriculture. So the vertical farming, Aero Farms is the world leader in vertical farming. Vertical farming is growing plants without sun and soil. Instead of sun, we use light emitting diodes, LEDs. So zero sun. My co-founder wrote a book of why the sun is not free. And if you think of a greenhouse, just think of the word greenhouse. Greenhouse is applied to the greenhouse effect of our planet, warming of our planet. And it comes from greenhouses. The, the definition of greenhouse is where one grows plants with a glass house. And it's called the greenhouse effect because greenhouses get really hot. It traps the sun and it gets really hot. So if a plant wants, for example, and I'll use Fahrenheit, but between 68 and 71 degrees Fahrenheit, but in the summer, a greenhouse gets to over 100 degrees, it illustrates how that's not the most effective way to grow a plant from a temperature standpoint. With LEDs and fully controlled agriculture, we could deliver the plant what it wants. But understanding that the costs of LEDs, which has been, which before the LED cost curve went down enough, it, it was of a point that didn't make vertical farming economically viable. So with those costs going down and seeing they're going to go down further, I realized this is, I was looking at, I liked local food production. I was considering making an investment in either greenhouse growing or vertical farming without sun with just LEDs. I realized this is going to be a bigger and bigger space. So once I realized that, then it became what plants to focus on. And I decided to focus on leafy greens because of high rates of spoilage, and that gets back to my point about the supply chain, 60% of the, of the produce spoils, high rates of food contamination, the biggest category of food contamination, think Listeria, E. coli, Salmonella, is in leafy greens, about, and the number's about 11%. High nutritional density, and this speaks to the social benefit. So the, think of Popeye eating his spinach, so one of the, some of the most nutritionally dense food is in salads, leafy greens, kale, arugula, watercress. And most of the product, the, the, the product is often very finicky, meaning it wants a very specific temperature humidity. So most of the leafy greens are grown on Western parts of continents. In the US, it's all California and Mexico. that It delivers the product sorry, in, the, in the US. Most of the US are grown in those areas. So that, and that really speaks to our value proposition of local food production at scale. So that, that got me into the business. And, and I'll share one of my aha moments was I spent time with a field farmer. So I realized if I'm going to be in this industry, let's spend time with the big farmers. So I spent time with Brian Church, who's now the CEO of Church Brothers, um, a very large field farmer. And, and he was very generous to me, taught me the industry. And when you realize like another term that's used in the industry is farm, farm out your work. 
And when, if you've heard that it, across industries, not surprisingly, it comes from the farming industry where a lot of farmers aren't farmers. They farm out the farming and they're aggregate the, the produce or the fruits or vegetables from the farms. So then you ask, what do these guys do? And they're great at processing. And leafy greens processing means washing and packaging. And that's where the economies of scale are. It's in the washing, washing and the packaging. If you, if you think about it, growing in vertical farm scales in a linear way, meaning you want more growing, you build more growing towers, processing in a nonlinear way. So you want, once you put in automation and packaging, you want to utilize it 24-7. You don't want to put in an automation line and just use it for 10 minutes a day. So you need enough growing to utilize the automation and packaging. And that's where I realized it's not just about growing, but it's about farming and having a business. So you need to bring all this complexity together. And one of like, there's always that moment in any entrepreneur where they realize they have a business. When Brian Church came to visit a small farm we had, and I'll never forget, he um, grabbed a whole bunch of our product by the fistful, popped it in his mouth, pulled out the roots and everything. And often the way plants grown inside before, I would argue arrow farms, it just, the systems didn't scale and the product didn't have the attributes that, that the uh, taste and texture that the customer wanted. But he took this handful of product roots and all in his mouth, chewed on it and said, this is the first system that I could visualize scaling. And hearing a, an excellent field farmer say that gave me confidence to go ahead and really build our first big farm. And, and get on the challenges and opportunities from that. And one of the things here that was interesting is that you guys, you know, really put in a lot of data science behind it, especially after you didn't see that the plants were growing. So, so what happened there? Well, it wasn't the plan. When we scaled up, sometimes the plants grew well, sometimes they didn't grow well. And we couldn't understand why. Uh, my co-founder, he, he had success before, on smaller farms and he couldn't understand why. So we realized we need to track data for data's sake and till we understand patterns. So we hired some really bright people, uh, a, for example, a graduate from Harvard, a graduate from MIT. And we told them they were, they had a background in data science and biology. We said, just look at this and track information and then hopefully the puzzle will start coming together and that's what happened we, we started figuring things out making adjustments to our understanding of what the plants want and this is another thing that we learned is the world's relatively ignorant on why a plant grows you talk to farmers and breeders why a crop was great one year and not so great another year they all have guesses of why it is but over a course of a year, maybe there was a hot spell, maybe there was a dry spell, maybe there was a cold spell, whatever it is, but it's not backed up by a tremendous amount of data and nuances. So there are a lot of nuances in a year that could make or break a crop. And here we're able to, with fully controlled agriculture, I would argue at Aero Farms, we're the world leader of understanding what a plant really wants. So it starts with what a plant wants, and then from that, understanding how to deliver what a plant wants. So it's a tough business to build, much harder than nanotech, where I'd say that what Aero Farms, what we had to do is realize we need to be both a technology company and an operating company. 
as leaders in the space of vertical farming, there wasn't just a solution we could take and acquire. So we really need to lead from a technology standpoint. And we also realized we're not going to really understand the technology and the nuances of technology unless we're the farmers ourselves. So we need to both, so we are both operators and we have people in process engineering and lean manufacturing that really understand how the flow, the workflows all come together and how to solve problems. And then we're a technology company and the technology starts with biology. And what I mean by that is understanding what a plant wants. So we have plant scientists, plant physiologists, plant pathologists, molecular biologists, microbiologists that look at a plant and understand what the specifications of the plant are. And then we we're very vertically integrated. So we'll work with the mechanical side, the biological side, the genetic side, the operational side, the environmental side to understand how to deliver what a plant wants. And whether we get that right or wrong can be big swings in CapEx and OpEx. So we're constantly investing resources to grow new crops, improve quality while reducing CapEx and OpEx. And we say it's about quality, then it's about price than volume. So there's no point hitting price if you can't hit quality. And there's no point hitting either like volumes if you can't hit price than quality. Got it. And how much capital have you guys raised for the operation today? Over 200 million. Over 200 million. I guess obviously this is the second rodeo, the second time that you've been, you know, added raising capital. What have you learned about raising capital, David? It's important to get the right capital. So there has to be a match with investors and the time horizon of the venture. So vertical farming, aero farms, it's a tough business. And it was really important that we have investors that have a long-term perspective and buy into our vision. I would argue like one of my frustrations is uh, my last company, we sold it sooner than I wanted. There was a construction downturn and uh, our investors wanted to sell. And, um, and they were funds and they had a very fund mentality of, of um, the life of their funds. And at Aero Farms, we, we have some great investors, for example, uh, Wheat Chief, which is uh, part of the Grosvenor estate. And, and, other other parties with is we've we've had success with single uh, with family offices so the Inca Group which is part of IKEA uh, the family that owns I think ninety percent of IKEA stores but the point is we've had some really strong success with parties like those that have a long term perspective we we do have some funds in us and it was with the understanding and making sure there's alignment on a long-term perspective. And and so far, we have a very supportive investor base and consequently a very supportive board that that allows us to make the long-term investments. When we grow, we've been growing some crops that we've been growing for four years and we haven't commercialized yet. We have confidence when we do, they're going to be beautiful and it's going to be a whole new revenue stream and opportunity for shareholders but it takes some real fortitude to understand, okay, it's, it's not just about growing a plant. It's growing it with consistent quality. And that quality and the challenges of scaling between small and big farms could be very different. So how do you design and build farms in a way where you de-risk elements of scale while hitting 
the business plan requirements, capital cost, operating cost, depreciation cost, et cetera, et cetera, to make the economics work. It's, it's hard farming. At the end of the day, the customer is not going to pay a, a big premium necessarily or a premium. So where do we be competitive? Our value proposition is taste, excellent flavor. And I, this was surprising. I didn't realize we'd compete on taste and texture when, in fact, we win on taste and texture. Just fantastic taste. For those in the New York area, I encourage you, my one sales pitch, try Dream Greens. It's sold under a retail brand, our product Dream Greens, through Whole Foods, Fresh Direct, Amazon Fresh. And it's uh, the best tasting salads you've ever had. And it's also the next value proposition is no pesticides. A lot of people think when you buy organics, you're buying pesticide free. Typically, it's not the case. It's organic pesticides. Here, we're able to grow with zero pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, zero, not organic, but zero. And then it's, it's fresh. So the biggest trend in retailing is fresh local. And that's one of the essences of our business plan is building, building farms locally so people have fresh food. Very nice. And so, David, so so obviously here, you know, like now we are we're dealing with with COVID, right? And 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 I'm sure that you guys have gone through certain adjustments. So, so I guess you know what has taught you dealing with this type of unforeseen, you know, events. Well, you have to respect it first of all, and I, I, like everyone else, I think we've learned that we don't need to travel as much as we need to, and we could work very effectively in some cases virtually, even higher fire, project our principles and so forth. The other parts, obviously, you need to respond fast to, to what the market's telling you. So we lost all our food or most of our food service customers. So how do you ramp up to retail customers? Uh, second, we, we prioritized social distancing. So we said we're not going to like we're not going to grow without social distancing. We had to change our packaging lines and uh, to, to social distance. So we had to add a new packaging line. Those are often designed around shoulder to shoulder areas. Sorry, that's a noise from my meeting. And, um, and then also thinking long-term about the industry, our food system, in, certainly in the US, probably most of the world, is really a centralized food production system. And, it's, and that's to take advantage of economies of scale and really reduce costs because people want cheap food and people want access to that food 365 days a year. What also comes with that is an increased risk in our supply chain. So if there is a contamination in one of these central food producing areas, it puts more risk in our whole food system. And what's not clear to me, is it a trend or is it a fad? If people don't want that risk, but they want a democratized slash distributed food system, that's what we could help deliver. I, I don't know if customers are going to, I think people are often forgetful. So they, they might right now say they want distributed, less risky food system, but there's a cost that comes with that. But Later tomorrow, they might forget and they might say, well, I just want cheap food that's, that's available 365 days a year. So that part I don't know, but I do know that we could respond, we could ch make changes fast where we need to, whether it's building a farm or spreading people out and work with our customers and understanding what are the opportunities, to, whether it's selling direct through like Amazon Fresh or Fresh Direct, some of these online retailers or prepared foods 
and uh, and working virtually, and and doing it in a way where of our 175 people, we've only had one person that had COVID, and they're doing great. So if you're responsible about wearing protective equipment, you could really live with this thing and not and really manage the risk of it spreading to others. Absolutely. So, um, so David, what a remarkable journey. Obviously, now the second startup that you've uh, that you've built from the ground up, and and I guess you know, like I'm sure that in this journey of of um, now with Aero Farms and and previously with Highcrete. Uh, I'm sure that there's a ton of lessons learned, a ton of successes, a ton of failures. I mean, everything, you know, that you can, that you can, you know, uh, tell in between. Uh, and I'm wondering if you had that opportunity of, of having a chat to, of having a chance to chat with your younger self, maybe that David that was coming out of the MBA program with, with that idea of starting up something. What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self and why, knowing what, what you know now, before launching a business? It would be on the cultural aspect, like we touched on earlier. It's one, life is too short to work with people you don't like to. So when, for example, my last company was sold, just don't want to work with people I don't want to work with. So they didn't fit the culture I wanted, the principles that are precious to me. So just move, move on sometimes in a happier way, sometimes in a, in a frustrating way, but it's just too short to deal with ugly people. And then second is uh, principles. So the culture principles, they're fragile and they're important. So you have to, you have to nurture them. You have to live by them. You have to, I mean, we, we fired someone for being rude not too long ago. And uh, it's, um, it's important and it's important to, like I said, hire and, and my younger self just didn't appreciate that. So if I could go back, it would, would be emphasizing these softer skills. And by the way, I think business schools aren't that good at teaching the, these softer skills and they're vitally important. I think they're getting better. And, and it's also part of like business used to be just for shareholders, understanding it's not just for shareholders. It's about the society we live in, the environmental factors, the societal factors. So how do we think about all these different stakeholders as we build value? Absolutely. And I love that. Very, very profound, David. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to say hi? My email is David Rosenberg at Aero Farms and uh, happy to, to connect with people. We're, we're constantly spreading out all over the world. We're building a facility in the UAE, the United Arab Emirates and expanding internationally. So we, we love connecting with other entrepreneurs and other people that are bought into our mission or excited by our mission and want a partner to expand. Amazing. Well, David, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Take care. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.